The message requested that he call at 25 Men Love Gardens East, Liverpool at 7.30 the following evening to discuss insurance with a mysterious man named R.M. Quattro. In 1873, a team of men sets off with gold rush fever, little knowing the grisly fate that awaits. I'm Jennifer Coffeen. And I'm Fraser Coffeen. And this is Creepy History. of creepy history it has been so long since season two and it makes me sad but now i'm happy i know especially because it was a sad sad winter sad winter times <laughs> a creepiness history endless winter time that's right but that's all right now we're back yeah we're back we got new stories i'm really excited yep we're gonna do a little bit more episodes this season than we have in years past yep uh we've recently posted a, a lost episode i know so check that out we, we yeah, got we, it in a trunk yeah it's <laughs> It's something kind of like that. We thought the audio was messed up, but it wasn't, so we recovered it, and voila! It's, it's some, now there for you. It was in a locked room. It was under some bones. <laughs> you make it, you go You go down the, like, bones creepy way. I was going more sort of sure. pragmatic and technical. <laughs> but I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, I, I, I envision yours being like a um, uh, sort of an Emily Dickinson style, right? Sure. Wasn't all of her stuff, like, found in an attic trunk after she died? It was? Shirley Jackson true? Shirley Jackson had a bunch of stuff found in a trunk. I thought Emily Dickinson was like, yeah, I thought all of her stuff was in a trunk. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't know. Maybe I I'm making it that up. up. Maybe Emily Dickinson herself was found in a trunk. <laughs> Collecting some of her writing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I may be getting my facts confused. Are you a writer if you don't leave behind, after you're dead, some of your work in a trunk? Oh, for sure. Yeah. For people to discover. And exactly. Like, and like go through. and Isn't like, that part of being a writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure, and like 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 so much so that like it's really great, but it's also like 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 a little bit of a burden to your family, like oh, how sure. much they have to deal with. Yeah, yeah, because I mean it's yeah. probably not one trunk; it's probably more like eighty boxes. Sure, and then also some of your clothes, and you know, do they do dishware is in there? Has that changed nowadays? Now that it's like a computer, is it like do they oh. buy like a like a mysterious flash drive? <laughs> <laughs> Under some, it's still boxes of clothes and old shoes. <laughs> yeah, with just one lone flash drive in it. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Hard to say. I don't know. All right, I'm excited for your drink. Yeah, this is. Uh, I'm trying something new. I was drink a, I've never had before. The, the ingredients lined up on the counter gave me pause. <laughs> sure, I thought that they would. <laughs> I thought they would, but it does not have any of the. Um, the like dark brown liquors that you always grimace about. There's that's, no like whiskey or bourbon or anything true. like that in here. It is more of a dirty brown color. Sure, a little like a like mud water. Yeah, it, is, it looks like mud water. It's yes. like you went, took our cups and went out in the backyard and then just scooped up some mud water. Exactly, that's what I'm going for. Yep. So what we have today is what is called a Colorado Bulldog. What? Yep, the Colorado Bulldog. Never heard of this. Neither had I. Let's have a sip and then I'll tell you a little bit more about it. It, okay? okay, so it's a little bit, right. little bit, you know, brown. It's very brown. Cheers. Oh, wait, give me, give me a better okay. little dig. No, I don't think it's going to oh, it's, it's it too, it's too like thick. It's too dense. <laughs> it's too dense to, to cheers. All right. Hmm. It's not bad. Interesting. 
No, it's not bad. I was kind of worried about it. So, okay. So, as always, you can check out the actual recipe um, is in the uh, description of the episode. But this one is basically just a white Russian with Coke floated on top of it. You know, it's Or tastes- Diet Coke for you. It tastes like a root beer float. It does taste of. a little bit like a you root beer float. You know what I mean? Or like a Coke float. Because mm-hmm. it's got the Kahlua. Mm-hmm. And then, the you know, the milk is probably kind of like the ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, that's and pretty it's good. it's got like that fizz taste, you know It's got a mean? little bit of fizz. Yeah. And the sweetness. I don't really taste the, like, I don't really feel like I get like a big profound like Coke taste. No, but you get the fizz. You get a you little bit of You know what I mean? Fizz. Like that, Yeah. All right. That's pretty good. It's not bad. Now I'll tell you one other thing. I, I didn't want to tell you this until we until we had some sips. That it's awesome, um, that it's really mud. <laughs> that it's actually mud. No, no. The that um, there uh, one of the steps in making it. You know, you got to put the you got to put all the stuff, and then you put the coke in on top. And the recipe for it said to pour the coke in slowly because you have to make sure that you don't curdle the milk. Oh, gross. I think I've done a good job. I don't sense any curdled milk. Why would coke curdle the milk? Well, I guess the like, you know, the chemicals and the acidity and the the carbonation. That's like when they're making on baking shows, when they turn whipped cream into scrambled eggs or whatever. Yeah, when there's like, yeah, when there's like eggs in it and stuff like that. So gross. All right. Well, there we go. Don't curdle, don't curdle your milk in your mud drink. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. I'm happy with that. I had a tough time finding a good uh, Colorado-based drink. Um, the, the Colorado Bulldog I came across, there is no – usually I like to give a little bit of background for it. There's, I looked it up. There's no knowledge of where it came from. Ooh, Nobody has any sense just, of where, it, where it's from. It just came out of nowhere? Just, it was just turned into existence. It was just there. One day someone was like, I've got a white Russian in this hand and a Coke in this hand. Pour it in. Voila. What if you went to Colorado and they're like, that drink doesn't exist? <laughs> like Large Marge? <laughs> what? Like Large Marge from Pee-wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> what do you mean, what? <laughs> How do we not know Pee-wee's Big Adventure in this house? Uh, Large Marge. I didn't really watch Pee-wee. Okay, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> All right. All right. Fair enough. Um, one, one last quick detail about the mm-hmm. drink. I did find, I was looking for like Colorado cocktails, and there was one that I found. I wish I'd written the name down. I forgot what it was. Oh, it's called the Yukon Gold, maybe? Something like that. Anyway, it's not in Colorado, but it is like a, a like old-timey drink that they serve at this one bar in, I believe, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And the gist is it's just, like, alcohol, like whiskey, and in the glass with the whiskey is an actual, you ready for this? Yeah. Mummified toe. Stop it. And you get, you go to this bar and you order it and they take the little toe out of the jar and they they put it in the toe from the story is that they've, Hey, they've used different toes over the years. I don't know where they get them from. But what what do you mean? You can't just have toes. It's Canada. They can do whatever they want. (laughs) (laughs) So they have, so they have a toe and they put it in the glass and they put whiskey in it and you drink your whiskey. And then do you give the toe back? Of course you give the toe back. They don't have like an unlimited supply of toes. Oh, okay. Yeah. They've got one one toe. Gross. And you haven't really joined the club unless the toe touches your lips no. as you drink. Oh, ew. And then, like, you get to put your name on the wall because you've drank the toe. That's fair. How are you... What are they soaking the toe in? I don't know. Something drinkable, apparently. I know. Or Who not. Knows? They don't care. Who knows? They're like, they're like that uh, whiskey will kill the formaldehyde. Yeah. I think that's the least of your concerns when you're drinking the toe. That is disgusting. So oh, I would give it so much money to see somebody do that. <laughs> if you were there, you wouldn't do it yourself? I don't know. 
I think you got to try it. I probably would. You got to go. For I it. certainly would have 15 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got to give it a shot. No problems then. <laughs> you got to try. All right. Good stuff. All right. Colorado Bulldog. Look at all this trivia everybody's getting tonight. I know. We're really right. helping out. All right. I am intrigued by your story. So your teaser. Excited. Your teaser didn't reveal much. You no. play your cards close to the vest. The teaser was very bizarre. Okay. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. My first. Story for season three is Ooh. the mysterious case of William Wallace, not Braveheart. I was going to say Braveheart. <laughs> also known as the locked room murder, also known as the impossible murder. But not Braveheart. Not Braveheart. Can I envision we, Mel Gibson the whole time that no, you do this? Please okay. do not. All right. We enough. also, we, we know what happened to Braveheart. We don't need, it's not a, it's not an impossible murder. Sure. Um, okay. Are you ready? ready? Yep. The locked room murder. Okay. I'm taking you back to 1931, Liverpool, England. So we have William Wallace. He is 52 years old. He's an insurance agent. He lives on 29 Wolverton Street with his wife, Julia. Uh, They met in 1914, and um, William had kind of an interesting background. He he worked in Calcutta. He kind of lived around the world and traveled. And then um, he got like a, a kidney... He had some sort of kidney ailment, and he ended up having to get it removed, which okay. I'm sure was not, you know, a small feat for that time Probably period. not simple, yeah. Yeah. And so since then, he's kind of struggled with health issues, and that kind of, like, derailed, like, some of his earlier travels and, like, what he was doing before. Got it. Um, so he goes, after that, he kind of, he meets Julia. Um, they, they get married. They settle down. He goes into insurance. Um, Julia is 17 years older than him. Just a little different yeah. for that time. <laughs> and How old was he, did you say? He's 52 right now, so that would make her 69. Oh, wow. Okay. I know. Yeah. yeah. So that's, they've been together since 1914. Okay. So they've been together for about, what would that be, like 16 years? Yeah. So they've been together for yes. a while. Okay. So we got William Wallace. We got Julia Wallace. They're hanging out at their home. So they kind of live, he's an insurance agent, and they sort of live kind of like a comfortable, like middle class, you know, lifestyle sure. in Liverpool. So um, William has a lot of hobbies. He's into chemistry. He's into botany. Uh, Julia is, a, uh, you know, she's a pianist. Um, she's and then he plays the violin. And so they kind of hold these sort of like musical evenings together at home, where they like play the violin and the, you know and the piano together. Well, they sound lovely. <laughs> they sound just lovely. They sound just like a lovely that reminds Liverpool, me Liverpudlian couple of like when you go to parties and then somebody pulls out their guitar and yeah, then somebody sure. else, you know and the girl these guys them. yeah you're just like oh god anyway. <laughs> so, um, you know, they're, they've lived there for quite a while. But, you know, they're relatively well-known and well-liked uh, by their neighbors and co-workers. Maybe, um, maybe the Beatles' parents knew them. Hey, maybe they 1930s are the Beatles. Liverpool. That's right, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, so many people sort of describe their marriage as, like, not really one of love. But, I mean, you know, they're, like, 52 and 69. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> whatever. Anyway. Are you saying that? When people are 52 and 69, they're not in love anymore? <laughs> I don't think they're, like, gushy about it. I Especially see, when one, I of see. Them, one of them's, like, missing a kidney. <laughs> you know what I mean? With the, with, the, with the missing kidney goes the love. It's true. It's maybe a proven are, fact. Maybe they're in private, but, uh, you know. Sure, sure. I mean, come on. Sure. Okay, anyways. I'm just saying that the people who said that maybe should just mind their own business. That's like, fair. what do they know? Exactly. Okay, anyway. So, that's that's where we're at. So, we are now, it's January of 1931. 
Um, it's a cold Monday evening, and William Wallace has been scheduled to play a chess game at his club that evening. So he is um, sort of like a medium active member of the Liverpool Chess Club. Okay. It meets uh, in the City Cafe, um, you know, on a pretty regular basis. So William Wallace is um, he is a member of this club, but he does not go very regularly. So what they do is um, they schedule you know the club members for matches, and he's often scheduled. But, you know, if you don't show up, you just kind of miss your match or sure. whatever. Um, so he, he has not been there and like to do a match in like months. Um, so, you know, he's a member, but he doesn't go very often. Yep. So that night, um, which is, I believe it was January 19th, 1931, um, the, you know, it's regular chess club night. And one of the other members, uh, Samuel Beatty, yeah, he answer, uh, they get a phone call at the... Um, the chess club, and he answers, and he takes a message down from a man calling himself R.M. Quattro. Am I saying it right? Mm, that seems right. Qualtro. Qualtro. All right, Qualtro. we're going to go with Qualtro. But he's British. Yeah, so. Qualtro. So yeah. R.M. Qualtro. Qualtro. Um, I didn't mean to emphasize the qual. I just meant, you know, Qualtro. Hey, Qualtro. Whatever. All right, so R.M. Qual- we're going to call him R.M. So R.M. calls. Should we call him R.M.Q.? <laughs> R.M.Q. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds mysterious. I know, R.M.Q. So R.M.Q. calls, and uh, he leaves him. He asks if Mr. Wallace is there, mm-hmm. and Samuel Beatty's like, no, you know, he's but he is scheduled for tonight to play chess. Um, so he uh, asks to leave a message, and he leaves a very specific message. He tells them to please ask Mr. Wallace to meet him at 25 Men Love Gardens East the very next night, which is Tuesday, at 7.30 p.m. He has insurance business to discuss with him. Okay. He All wants right. to buy some sort of insurance thing or whatever. Um, so Beatty records the message. He writes it on a piece of paper and, you know, hangs up the phone. So uh, a little while after that, maybe 20 or 30 minutes later, uh, Mr. Wallace does arrive. Um, it's a little unclear why the caller would call there instead of his home or his place of business to leave a message like that. Uh, Also, it's a little weird because, you know, William Wallace often didn't attend. Right, right. So how would he know that that night he would happen to be there? But that's what happened. So Beatty gives him the message. And, um, you know, Wallace kind of, you know, says, like, you know, oh, it's, you know, I've never heard of Men Love Gardens East. Uh, I don't know where that is. He kind of asks around. They, you know, they sort of talk about it. A lot of people lo- know, like, Men Love Gardens Avenue or, like, the street, but they don't really know the East, so, you know, so there's yeah. sort of, there's a conversation that happens around that. Um, we'll come back to this part. Okay, so um, the next evening, they play the match. All goes well. Okay, next evening. Does he win? Is recorded <laughs> in history? That's, no. Oh, I know, right? What a shame. Let's say no. Okay. So it is now, I mean, he doesn't show up very often. So That's true. So probably he's probably not, not as good as the other guys. He's not very skilled. Yeah. Okay. So now it's Tuesday. Um, Wallace is, decides that he's going to take this meeting. Um, he and his wife, Julia, are seen by, uh, so it's like the milk boy stops by their house at around 6.30, 6.45 p.m. and collects like the weekly money yep. from them. He sees both uh, William and Julia at this time. 
Uh, William ends up leaving uh, right after that. He leaves about 7 p.m. to take a tram car to the south part of the city. So he catches the 706 tram from Anfield to Men Love Gardens. Um, and this tram takes about 10 minutes to get you know to the end. When he gets on the tram, he uh, asks the conductor. Uh, he sort of says, hey, I'm looking for this address. I'm looking for Men Love Gardens East. You know, have you heard of it? Uh, the conductor isn't really sure, but he's like, you know, you're going to be stopping on the street. Like they have a conversation about it. He also, in this 10 minutes ride, asks several other passengers if they have heard of the street. He doesn't know where he's going. He's not quite sure. He got this phone call. He sort of tells everybody the real story. Okay. Okay. So I'm sure you and I, as you know, people who have spent a lot of time on public transportation are probably like, can you please shut up? Yeah. <laughs> Asking it's everybody, like yeah. One of those situations where like everyone else is sitting quietly and one person's yapping <laughs> away, and you're like, nobody wants to yapping at to everybody. You. Nobody cares. The craziest thing happened to me. Let me tell I you my story about your chess club and your men love gardens. Anyway, so they get to the end uh, where he needs like of that stop where he gets off. Oh, and he asks the conductor several times to let him know when they get to the street that he's supposed to get off of. So the conductor's like, hey. We're here. Get out. So, um, everyone, everyone cheers. (laughs) (laughs) So now it's 7 15 PM and he boards the five a car. And again, he gets on and asks the conductor to let him know when they reach his stop, he's going to the specific thing. You get the whole thing. He's telling the whole story again. Um, his behavior is a little bit strange. It attracts the attention of both the conductor and several other passengers. People remember him. They're like, that's the guy who was like repeatedly asking about this. Um, and uh, so William gets off the tram again, and now he's on Men Love Gardens, and he is uh, starting to try to find the correct address. So he's now on. He's now on foot. Correct. Okay. He's taken two trams. Yep. Told the story like seventeen times. Yep. And now he's out. So there's several Men Love Gardens in the area. Um, the streets are listed as north, south, and west. There is no east oh, Men Love Gardens. Okay, okay. So William walks around for quite a while. Um, you know, at this point, it's like getting closer to 730. He stops at several houses. He ends up stopping at 25 Men Love Gardens West. All right. And the people open the door when they hear the knocking, and there's this man outside, and he seems kind of frustrated, and he's sort of like, I'm looking for Men Love Gardens East. I thought maybe I got the address wrong, blah, blah, blah. Can you help me out? And, you know, they have this whole conversation with him. Sure. They remember him quite well. Um, you know, they kind of aren't, they do, They themselves don't know. They kind of, you know, give him a suggestion and off he goes. Uh, he goes to a news agent to ask for directions. He stops a police officer on duty. And every single time he repeats his entire story of the strange phone call, you know, from the chest night. This guy seems and, like a lot to deal with. Yeah, right? Yeah. And meeting with RM Quantro. RMQ. RMQ and the whole deal. Um, and basically, after searching this area for about 45 minutes, he Jeez. gives up. Okay. He's like, I'm out. I can't find it. I'm past the time. You know, I, I don't know what to do. Maybe the person will call me later. So he takes the trams back home. And um, there are also several sightings of him on the way home. Uh, a young typist named Lillian Hall. I bet she had a jaunty hat. Sure. Um, yeah. She sees Wallace around 8.35 p.m. And she says she saw him speaking to a man on Richmond Road. And he was quite close to his home at that point, which was located at 29 Wolverton Street in Anfield. His neighbors, uh, Wallace's neighbors, John and Florence Johnston, they see Wallace at 8.45 p.m. He appears, so they, they're walking past, and they see him standing outside of his house. And at this point, he seems like he's 
like stuck. Like yeah. he seems like he can't get in or he's kind of agitated. Um, and so they kind of stop and ask if he needs any help. And to be clear, that's his neighbor, John Johnston. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Excellent. Just wanted to clarify. Mm-hmm. All right. Correct. Unfortunate choice from the parents, but you know, yep, it's yep. all good. But he wore a lot of slacks. John Johnson. <laughs> with suspenders? Yeah, slacks and suspenders. Sure. Not that there's anything wrong with suspenders. Uh, no, we, no. we support all of you Live, listeners' suspender choices. Live your life. Um, okay. So they ask him what's, you know, what's going on? Do you need any help? William tells them that both the front and the back doors of his house are locked and they won't open. He can't get them open with his key. Okay. He says the locks must be jammed. Like, he doesn't know what's going on. He asks if the... And um, also, he's been knocking on the door repeatedly and his wife has not answered. And she's supposed to be home. She wasn't planning to go anywhere. You know, you get the feeling yeah, too. It doesn't yeah. go out very often. Sure. <laughs> um, I got anything. So, uh, and he's trying to get his key into the door and he says it's not working. And he asks if they've seen anything or, you know, or whatever. And they're kind of like, you know, we, you know, we don't know what's going on. So they try to help him. Um, they, you know, they go around to the back of the house and then he is suddenly able to unlock his door without any issue. So he and the Johnstons walk in, they turn on a light and then William turns around uh, to like where the Johnsons are kind of standing in the doorway and starts, you know, yelling. And he says, uh, quote, oh, come and see. She's been killed. Oh, mm-hmm. OK. The Johnsons enter the house. They find Julia. She is um, just kind of splayed out in this like the front main living room area in front of the fire. Uh, and she has been very brutally beaten to death. She's dead. She's very she dead. She is very dead. Super um, dead. Her body is in like a pool of blood. There's blood spatters across the wall. And then um, she, both her dress and then she is lying on top of like a raincoat, like a Macintosh raincoat. Uh-huh. And they're very, cl- um, they're burned slightly because she's so close to the fire. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So she's obviously been laying there for a while. Uh, Wallace stands staring. He's like very upset. And then he turns back to the Johnsons and he says, again, quoted, um, they finished her. Look at her brains. Oh, geez. Yeah, I know. Look right? at her brains. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think it's pretty bad. Okay. So everybody, you know, they run out, they call the police, um, police come in. Uh, it looks like a burglary, like, you know, that's, they kind of start looking around the house. There's, um, Wallace said that there was a locked kitchen cupboard that he kept his insurance money in, um, and they had been broken into and cash was missing. Uh, but nothing else appears to be taken from the house. Uh, Julia's purse was still there. It didn't look like it was touched at all. Uh, and then there was a little bit of like rifle, like sort of mess in the bedroom where there was like things that had been rifled through, but it didn't look like anything was missing. Okay. Um, so they immediately kind of think maybe a burglar. There was at that time a serial burglar in the area. It had been nicknamed the Anfield Housebreaker. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> by That's the locals. Good. Yep. But this just didn't fit because no one else had been hurt or around or any, you know what I mean? Like yeah. nothing like this had been connected with that. Well, it seems like it's RMQ, right? He called and lure him out of the house and then came and murdered her. It seems to be the obvious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Guess. All right. So um, the Meyerside police are investigating and basically they look around the evidence and everything and they feel like the obvious suspect is Mr. Wallace himself. Well, that's also a possibility. Yeah. Yes. So, um, now at this time, the police work, um, was not great. Um, there had been a strike in 1919 and the police force was quite shorthanded. 
So a lot of the officers who were, um, you know, filling in the roles of like detectives and things like that, they were not really qualified. Um, there was not a police photographer. So a journalist from the Liverpool Daily Post had to come and take the pictures. Nice. And you know, this is 1931, right? So they're, they're just walking through everything. They're touching yeah, yeah. everything. Everybody's smoking. <laughs> like, sure. you know what I mean? It's like no one's protecting evidence, like any of that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, they didn't really, they weren't into the forensics aspect yeah. yet. And yeah. depend, especially because it was, uh, um, you know, a journalist photographer. I mean, you know, they used to do stuff where, like, they would move the body so they could get a better angle for the picture. Sure, and, right. you know, and I don't know if that kind of stuff was happening, but it certainly happened a lot. Yes. So, um, all right. So, John Edward Whitley McFall, who was a forensic expert, very great fancy. Name. Great yep, name. Yep. At Liverpool University, he was brought in to determine the time and the cause of death. Um, now, again, this is very early times, the early 30s. Um, you know, he basically, he was looking at, like, you know, when the rigor mortis set in, all that kind of stuff. And he basically said she would have died somewhere around, like, 6.30 to 8 p.m., like, okay. within that kind of window, 6.30, you know, something like that. Um, this, of course, gives our Mr. Wallace... Almost the perfect alibi, right? right? He's gone he, that whole time. Yeah, he was seen by the milk boy at like about six thirty, six forty-five p.m., and then he left the house and was seen on the tram at seven oh six p.m. Yeah, and then like, and then in the area, and then on the tram. Yeah, all right. kinds of places. Multiple Tons. witnesses yeah. saw him after that time. Um, you know, in like in that area, he talked to people. He talked to a police officer yeah. all during that kind of window that they say that she would have been murdered. Um, and then also witnesses saw Julia alive. You know, six thirty, six forty-five p.m. So if the time, even if the time of death was like off by like fifteen minutes here or there, right? Like he kills her before he leaves, right? It would have only given him fifteen minutes, really, like a fifteen twenty minute window, because they were both seen at like six thirty, six forty-five, and then he was, and then he was seen at seven. Yeah. He was seen at seven oh six. So like okay. it's a very short amount of time in there that like if he were to com- be the one to commit the murder, that he did it for such a grisly sure intense murder um you know he would have had to wash out the blood change his clothes and then like run out and make the tram uh they do an exam of the house drains uh and it reveals that they've not been used that night i don't know how they figured that out um and the the police believed they believe that mr wallace had enough time to murder his wife and then board the tram that's sort of their their theory right um they they sort of, um, you know, base it on the, the the time of death was sort of moved up a little bit once I think some other people came in and looked and they kind of felt like it was more that it had taken place at 630. Um, and they, they so they also part of their uh, case was they had a detective go through the motions of the murder and then run to the tram stop. Mm. So they were like, nice. okay, okay, starting at six thirty, that's when he murders the person, and then they have the detective like you know do like you know go through the motions of committing the murder, changing clothes, sure. and then running out to the tram. Um, but many people sort of disagree with that, saying that the detective was, like, younger and fitter than Mr. Wallace, who was, like, 15-year-old, 52, and didn't have a kidney. <laughs> right, that's um, a problem, yeah. The police, uh, part of the police's theory was also that the Macintosh, which was found under her, Julia's corpse, uh-huh. um, and that had, like, it was not part of their household. Like, okay. it was not, did not belong to them. Um, they felt it had been used, like, na- Wallace had been naked and used the Macintosh to commit the crime, so he didn't have clothes underneath to get blood spatter and then took the Macintosh off, left it, 
and then you know Lizzie Borden. Lizzie style. Borden. Yeah, it always Lizzie, comes back to Lizzie Borden. He Lizzie Borden. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. So he obviously let's, let's start. Let's start using that as an expression. Whenever you commit a murder naked, that's Lizzie it's a, Borden. It's a Lizzie Borden. <laughs> Lizzie Bordening it. <laughs> Where that'll come up quite often. We'll have many reasons to use that. <laughs> Oh, really, Lizzie Borden, that one, huh? Eh? Oh, that was a Lizzie Borden if I ever saw one. Uh- <laughs> Have you considered that maybe this was a Lizzie Borden? <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be very helpful. For sure, for mm-hmm. sure. I'm going to now look for solely yeah. creepy history stories where we can incorporate the Lizzie Borden. Absolutely. All right. Okay, anyway, so William Wallace, uh, the theory is that he Lizzie Bordened it. Lizzie Bordened it? Yeah, yeah, Borden. Yeah, yeah, that works. It works. Okay, worked it right in there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they examine the bath and the drains, and they they don't find any traces of blood. um, You know that kind of thing. So there's sort of a thought of like you know like how did he wash his you know his hands? Sure. You know whatever. but the police run with this. There's no other explanation as to how Julia came to be murdered. Um, she, you know, the doors were locked, um, and you know he had, you know, and he. So well, Wallace was charged with her murder. Um, two weeks later, oh no, the trial was in April, so it's pretty quick afterwards. Okay. Anyway, the jury is out for not even an hour. Oh, wow. Deliberating, and they come back with a guilty verdict. Okay. All so right. I mean, I think people were just like, it had to be him. There's just you nothing know? else that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. This was also a time, too, where I feel like things like time of death and stuff like that didn't hold as much weight as it does now because, I mean, they just didn't have the forensics, really, to, like, super back stuff up. So I think it would be really easy for, you know, a jury to be like, you know, yeah, he said it was, like, between 7 and 8, but 6.30 – Certainly could have been. Right, right. You know, yeah. Yeah, because it's pretty vague. Yeah. Anyway. I get that. Um, so he is sentenced to death by hanging, and he is given an execution date for the next month. But there is an immediate appeal, um, and they say, well, the appeal says, the evidence does not support the verdict. And after, um, you know, the appeal, the Court of Criminal Appeal in London agrees, and Mr. Wallace is set free. Oh, okay. Um, so at this point, he tries to return to his regular life, um, but basically, you know, the public is like, you're guilty. Yep. Get out of here. Um, Which has happened before in your stories. You're really into yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> public is like, not for you, buddy. Many people believe he got away with it. Uh, he tries to return to his old insurance job, but, you know, his customers, nobody will work with him anymore. Right. Uh, he gets, you know, hate mail and he gets threats. Um, and he basically um, has to take, like, a smaller kind of desk position at his company, you know, away from everyone. Two years later, uh, he dies um, at Clatterbridge Hospital uh, from complications related to his kidney disease. The missing kidney. It the missing kidney back. and all okay. comes back. All right. So, uh, you know, it's a very sad sort of ending for him as well. Yeah. Um, that's it. We what? don't we don't get anything else. You're not going to tell me that like then 3 years later they found some DNA that revealed the whole truth? This is one of those cases. So it's a hugely popular well-known case for like mystery writers. Sure. So yeah, yeah, yeah. James, Dorothy Sayers, Raymond Chandler, they they love it. They, you know, have used elements of it in their own books. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's been referred to as I believe it was PD James who this quoted the impossible murder because Will- Wallace couldn't have done it and neither could anyone else. Yeah. Um, there is one other suspect. Because it's so bizarre when you think of like 
He gets this mysterious. Oh, and oh, so, I forgot. Yeah. I got to go back. They also. This is part of the case. They also traced. Okay. Remember the phone call? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the chess club. Okay. So the police go back and they they trace the call with the switchboard operator. Right. At the Liverpool telephone exchange. Um, and she helps them trace the call. And it was placed at a phone booth 400 yards away from Wallace's home, uh, which is right by where he could have caught the tram to get to the chess club location. So is the thought then that, like, he himself yes. placed the call... And then he was so conspicuous talking to people in order to build his alibi. Correct. Like, and he placed it to the chess club so that, like, the chess club guy would be like, yes, he got this call. Yep, yep. Right. So it is very and then that's suspicious. Why, and, that, and then he makes sure that he talks to a cop while, exactly. he's, while he's on the thing and all that. Exactly. I can see that. It's very I, that suspicious. Yeah. So the theory is, is that, like, yeah, he makes the call himself, which is a very bizarre call-in message anyway. Yeah. And then to set up this, to start setting up this alibi. Then he shows up like 25 minutes later. They give him the message. He he repeats it to several people. Yep. I'm going here. I'm leaving He knocks this time. on the house of the, the Man Love Garden West person. Exactly. And all that it's stuff. a very, yes. and it's also it's a very specific time, right? So like all these people at the chess club, yeah. like the next day are like, well, I talked to him when he was going to this meeting. He had to be there at 730. Yeah. And, you know, everybody's repeating the same story over and over again, which has all his times in it. Yes. And then he takes these trams. They leave at very specific times, uh, you know, and, and I, I think that the other thing was he was talking to a police officer and the other people, he like, when he was searching, he kept repeating, I have to be there by 7.30, it's 7.15 right sure, now. Sure, really established, That's yeah. really, really suspicious. Yeah. And then the key thing, obviously, then with the neighbors. Right, and then suddenly yeah. the door opens. It's very bizarre. I get it. Um, anyway, other, other suspect. Okay, Sorry. So there's one other suspect. There's a man named Roger Wilkes. Um, he... Nope, not Roger Wilkes. Yeah, Roger Wilkes was an independent news, radio news editor. And in 1981, he sort of does a broadcast on the 50th anniversary of this crime. Okay. This is, you know, big crime. Everybody talks about it all there. So he basically delves into this other suspect, a man named Richard Gordon Perry. And uh, at the time, the police did talk to him. He had an alibi, um, and the alibi was his fiancée. Um, but after Wallace d- died and they sort of broke up, the woman uh, basically went back to Wallace's lawyer and said that the alibi had been false and she made it up. Um, so it's sort of discovered on the night of the murder that um, Richard Gordon Perry, he visited a local garage. He used a high-pressure hose to wash down his car. A mechanic at the garage noticed that hit one of his gloves was soaked in blood. Um, and he, um, so how he knew Wallace was that he, you know, he was sort of a spoiled person. He spent his, he spent his money like crazy, whatever. And, um, he kind of knew Wallace from like their dealing, like they had known each other like years and years before, like through his travels. And he knew that, um, Wallace kept, uh, a cash box in his home with like his insurance money in it. Got it. And then he also knew Wallace's wife, like he sort of knew them, you know, socially or whatever. So he, the theory is that he decided to like, you know, lure Wallace out of the house um, by making this phone call. And he's RMQ. Him, correct. Yes, okay. Send him on this like wild goose chase with this address that doesn't exist. And then he comes in, murders Julia, takes the air insurance money out. Um, but the issue is there was very little cash in that cash box that particular day. Got so it. like, is it thought of like, this was his plan. He goes in there, take the money out. There's hardly any money. And then he just freaks out and leaves. Yeah. Um, 
But again, he was visited by the police. He gets this alibi, but like many years later, the girlfriend says, or the fiance says it was false. Um, many people feel that the case against Perry is much stronger than it was against William Wallace. Um, there's motive. Uh, there's a bloodstained glove found in Perry's car the night of the murder. Um, and there's thought of like there was really no motive for Wallace to kill his own wife. Um, and yeah, so Perry dies in 1980. He like he admits nothing. There's really no evidence found. Um, but uh, many people who's knew him and spoke to him said he had you know like crazy detailed knowledge of the case um yeah that's it so right. i mean again it's just there just wasn't any evidence yeah really. yeah i mean that theory wouldn't hold up any better no but that's why they're sort of saying they're like it just doesn't make sense the crime doesn't make sense for anyone yeah why would wallace have done it why would it have been so violent yeah it just doesn't make sense all um around. that's why it's the impossible murder exactly Good yeah. stuff. Yeah. So there you go. Nice. Yep. All right. That is the locked room impossible murder. But here's the other thing: we don't know that the room that the doors were locked. That's true. Only Wallace is yeah. telling us. Yeah. That it was. Yeah. So but then why would he lie? If he didn't do it. Right. He would lie if he did it. Right. But if he didn't do it, didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Why would he lie? Right. True. Like, why would he pretend like he couldn't get in? Sure. That would make no sense. If he wasn't doing it. Very interesting. Yeah. Anyway, right. there you go. Cheers. Good story. I think he did it. It sounds like it. Mm-hmm. But you do like to blame the husband. But the I mean, it, the coincidences. Like, why would you talk to all those people like that? It's true. It makes no sense. Yeah. No sense. It's weird. All right. Yeah, anyway. I'm willing to condemn him as well. <laughs> Take that, Wallace. <laughs> we don't believe you. And if not, that is some terrible luck. Yeah, bummer for you. Worst luck ever. But no, you did it. And also, who calls somebody at their random chess club and says, come meet me? And you're like, all right. Like, you know (laughs) what I mean? I'm skeptical. It was a different time, but still. All right. Anyway. There you go. Good stuff. Thanks. Thank you again for that one. That was a good one. Sure. A story I'd never heard anything about. I know. It was always fun. All right. You want to dive into mine? I'm ready. To the to uh, to Colorado, where the home of the Colorado Bulldog. That's right. And how's the Bulldog treating you? It's not bad. Why do they... Go, they should call it the Colorado Mud Ball. <laughs> <laughs> Why do they not call it that? Because no one orders that. Who's ordering the Colorado Mud Ball? That's fair. You even know when you said it, you knew that no one would order it. There is a mud slide. Nobody has a problem with that. That sounds better than Mud Ball. Doesn't it? Fair. Mud ball. Give me a mud ball. No. No, not doing it. All right. <clears throat> My story. My story starts with a little a little uh, a little teaser, like a little a little pre-credit sequence. Nice. To wet the appetite, okay? So imagine, you know, in the film version, the credits haven't even rolled yet. Mm-hmm. And the date is April 16th, 1874. All right. Okay. Uh, the setting is the Los Pinos Indian Agency in Colorado, a little office building in Colorado. Uh, a man who works there at the Indian Agency is uh, sitting down eating his breakfast when all of a sudden the door bursts open and in comes a man who is wearing rags for shoes. He's begging for help. He needs food. He needs water. He's all kinds of messed up. Uh-huh. Oh, no. This guy, this... He smells. I'm sure he smells. But they all smell. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
it's all relative, you know. The guy, the, the, the guy working at the agency feeds him. The man instantly throws up. So he gives him some whiskey, and he calms down, and he tells his tale. Yes! I like how he's like, food makes you vomit. Let's go to the Have some whiskey. You'll be fine. So, uh, so he begins to tell his tale. So first of all, he says he tells his name. He introduces himself, and he's a gentleman by the name of Alfred Packer. Nice. Again, Alfred. A L F, not Alfred. Now, Alfred. this 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 just sets the this is just a little detail that sets the table for this whole story I'm about to tell you. Alfred Packer. <laughs> um, maybe his name was indeed Alfred Packer. Mm-hmm. Maybe his name was in fact Alfred Packer. Or the other, the kind of prevailing theory, which I just love so much, is that his name was, in fact, fact, Alfred Packer, but then he got a tattoo, and the person doing the tattoo misspelled it, and so he just rolled with it and decided he was now Alfred, since now he has the word Alfred tattooed on his arm. He really, (laughs) truly had a tattoo that said Alfred. Apparently, yes. I mean, obviously that's what happened. So there you go. You just gotta own it. Back then, you're not fixing that tattoo. That's it for you. That's your name. So anyway, Alfred Packer. Yeah. He was born in Pennsylvania in 1842. Um, As a child, he lived in Pennsylvania for a little bit before moving to, get ready for this, LaGrange County, Indiana. What, what? Yeah. Boom. (laughs) That's the sound of our high five. So there he was, Alfred Packer living in LaGrange County. Um, at, uh, at 20 years old, he, the Civil War is going on, so he enlists for the Union. And, uh, but he, unfortunately, he is honorably discharged after eight months because he has epilepsy. Oh. So honorably discharged. Yeah. He enlists again. He is discharged again. So what? He, he tries again under like a different name. He tries to sneak He tries under Elf. Alfred. He tries under Alfred. That's what happened. With like a with like a mustache. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, aren't you Alfred Packer? No, no, no. <laughs> Alfred. I'm Alfred Packer. <laughs> Alfred Packer doesn't have a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. Good point, sir. Good point. <laughs> and off he goes. But he's that but he's everything. But he's discharged again. So as you do at that time, um, you know, he doesn't have any real prospects of what's going on. So he does what what anybody does then. He goes west. Yeah. Yep. And he lives a life out west that is very typical of a guy who goes west doing a whole bunch of odd jobs. He's a miner. He's a ranch hand. He's a guide, but he's bad at being a guide. You know, he's just living that kind of westerny life. Sure. Um, he is also to put uh, to put, uh, you know, uh, you know, put it in basic terms. He's just a jerk. Nobody likes him. <laughs> he's just—he's <laughs> just a big old jerk. Such a bummer. Yeah, he is very unliked. He, you know, he's constantly like trying to swindle people at cards and like yeah. you know scam people and like mooch off of them. He's uh-huh. a jerk. You know, no, nobody likes this guy. Trying to convince everybody his name's Alfred. Exactly. I bet they're uh, like, "Hey, Alfred." He's like, "Alfred." Alfred. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Alfred. It's on my arm. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, Alfred is out there being a jerk. And in November of 1873, he is in Utah. And he's uh, hanging out in a bar, chilling. And he meets a group of uh, 20 people who are hanging out there in the bar as well. Uh, well, that's a lot of people. Well, they're, they're, a, they're a party. Maybe oh, okay. a party is a better word for it. They're a party of 20 um, who is heading, on, who's on their way to Breckenridge, Colorado for gold. All right. I mean, this is, you know, it's gold time, right? Gold rush fever is, is upon us. So they're going to go to Breckenridge and get some gold. Uh, Alfred tells them, ah, 
it's good that you're it's a good thing that you met me because not only am I a decorated prospector, but I am also a guide who knows Colorado like the back of my hand. Oh no. Uh, he is not a prospector. Yeah. He does not know Colorado. Yeah. Two lies. But he convinces them and so they take him. So on they go. Uh, November 1873, they set off from Utah for Breckenridge, Colorado. The journey is very hard. Um, as anyone of our general age knows, thanks to playing Oregon Trail, <laughs> you have to time when you leave to go west very carefully. And November is not the time to travel through Colorado. They leave in November? They leave Utah in November to get to Colorado. I, all right, listen, I'm not trying to be mean. I feel like some people get what they get. It's not a good choice. That, it's not I a mean, good choice. You know better you at least know not to do that you know it's going to snow it's gonna be bad oregon trail do they feel like because they're going west do they feel like like they've heard that the weather is better out there they think that like they're gonna like walk out of it like they're I don't already get it. west they're in utah they're in there i know but west. they feel like they're gonna go more you know what i mean like if they heard it's stories east. they have to go east utah west utah is west of colorado isn't it yeah utah's further west they're going east so dumb. <laughs> it's bad. It's a bad choice. Anyway, point is, off they go. Um, they head out. Uh, the part, you know, uh, Packer's like, no, nah, it's going to be fine. So it's winter. They're on this trail. The trail, of course, gets snowed over, as Shock. you expect. Shock. Uh, Packer, as you expect, doesn't have any clue what he's doing. He doesn't know the way. Mm-hmm. They are lost. It's bad. Um they begin very quickly to not trust Packer. He's fighting with everybody. Remember, they all know each other. He's right. this one outsider. And he has um, a bad personality. And he's, doing, he's got a bad personality. He told them to do this. They're not doing well. So he starts fighting with everybody, um, including a guy named Frank Miller, uh, who's on the trip. And they, they, they clash quite a bit. So as they're out for longer than they expected, they're running out of food. They start eating the feed for their horses. They have some horses with them, of course. They start eating the feed for the horses and they discuss the idea that like, you know, we might have to eat these horses. We should eat Alford. That seems like a good choice. (laughs) Maybe we're going to have to eat these horses. But then, then, Fortune fa- turns uh, in their favor, and on January 21st, they come to, they arrive at uh, a camp, a camp of uh, that is from the UT, U-T-E, the UT tribe, uh, Native American tribe out there. Chief Ure is their chief, and mm-hmm. so they, they come to their campsite, and, uh, uh, and Chief Ure takes them in, and uh, he, you know, takes care of them and feeds them and stuff like that, and he says... Do not go back out there. Yeah. You may, you may stay here in my home for the next, you know, couple months until it gets better, and then you can go. But you need to wait out the winter. Do not go. Yeah. And uh, there's there's debate about this. The, the group is torn about what to do here. Some of them think this is very prudent. They remember that they were about to eat horses. Yeah. Uh, others of them are afraid that if they wait too long, other people are going to get to Breckenridge and the gold first, and the gold's all going to be gone by the time they get there. So we got to get there. Oh, we got a hot lead on the gold. We got to get to the gold. We got to be the first don't. ones. They got some letter six months ago. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they can't quite decide. So the group splits up. Ten of them stay at the chief's place, and 11 of them, including Packer, go on their way. Those ten people who stay behind are really smart. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, so now Packer's leading a group of ten into the, back into the wilderness. So Ore, Chief Ore, again, is like, do not go. Yeah. And they're like, nope, we're going. So he says, okay, fine. If Good you luck. insist on going, then... 
at least let me explain to you the safest route, which is where you follow the river uh-huh. over here and you avoid the mountains because that way you won't get as snowed on as you would if you went into the mountains. Sure. Packer, of course, being Packer, immediately insists, nope, mountains. The mountains are more direct. Um, they're going to get us there faster. Remember, we got to beat the people to Breckenridge if we're going to get the gold. The mountains is a more direct Why route. Why does anyone listen to him after he already no messed them up? Why else is he saying this? He doesn't have any idea what he's talking about. He's well, just saying it just yeah, to say it. I understand why he says it, because he's just Because he's jerk. just a jerk, and but he just like, wants his way. They listen Who knows? to him. Again, you get what you get. Well, so, again, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. Again, there is debate, <laughs> and five of the 11... Five of them decide to go on Ure's path along the river, and five join Packer and head into the mountains. Uh, you gotta wonder what those, those five. I know. So we're down to now Packer leading a group of six. I bet they six. all secretly wanted to be the leaders. Maybe, maybe. All five of them. Yep. And they're like, this is gonna be my chance. This is gonna be it. Yeah. So it's now February 9th. Packer oh. and, uh, and his group of, of five others, which includes his, his rival Miller, they head off into the mountains. And their goal is to get to the Los Pinos Indian Agency, the place where our little prologue took place, Mm -hmm. um, because that is right nearby Breckenridge and right near the gold. So that's our plan. We're going to head through the mountains. We're going to get there. I think the goal is just like behind the building. It's just somewhere around there. (laughs) The Los Pinos Indian Agency is 75 miles away. They figure it's going to take them 14 days to get there. That's the plan. (laughs) Yep. It sounds like the the correct timeline. Yep. Yep. So off they go into the mountains. Now, uh, as that has been uh, confirmed by, you know, people at the, by some of the fifteen who did not go with them, uh, Pecker and his group were way, way unprepared. They did not have snowshoes. <gasps> they did not have heavy, like heavy duty clothing. They did not have flint. They, what? Yep. They had minimal food, and as far as, like, weapons go, because we're going into the mountains of Colorado, so there could be, like, you know, bears and stuff. Yeah. As far as weapons go, they had two rifles, one pistol, a very minimal amount of ammo, some knives, and a hatchet. So what is their plan for the 14 days? How can they build a fire? We got this. They're just, just, just going to plow through? Pluck. <laughs> pluck and determination. Oh, man. Off they go. Everybody, this is all I confirmed. feel like this is going to be very and very poorly, and I feel like it's hard for me to muster up a lot of <laughs> It's all right. So they venture off. February 9th, they venture off. Uh, no one from that party is seen until April when our prologue happened. And, oh, man. And Packer bursts into the Los Pinos Indian. Flashback. So, so back we go. I, we, I return us to uh, I return us to April. Right. What was the date again? April sixteenth, eighteen seventy four. Packer has just come in. He's had his whiskey. He's calmed himself down. And of course, the guy who's there is like, uh, "What's your deal, buddy? <laughs> what happened? To what you? happened to you?" And Packer says, "Well, let me tell you my story." So he he kind of tells basically the story that I've told up until now, right? Mm-hmm. You know um, that you know this. The, you know, we, I was with this group. We split up. Um, me and these five went into the mountains. And then he says uh, what happened with that group is that uh, Packer became snowblind. He, uh, he, he, he had started having vision problems because of the lights of the bright of the snow, which is feasible. Um, and he was not able to keep up. So his story here is that because he couldn't keep up, um, the men all talked and they decided that they were, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't risk being so slow with him. You know, he was essentially blind. So they said, okay, Packer, here's a rifle. Um, 
we're going to go. Godspeed. And he said that he uh, ate some roots and plants for a while as he slowly made his way and his sight came back and he made it. Mm. And that's my story. Suspect. <laughs> that's it. So, so he's fine. Good deal. <laughs> <laughs> they, of course, are skeptical. They're like, mm, yeah. this sounds really dicey. And one particular, here, here's one particular detail that, they, that they're very concerned about, the, the people of the Los Pinos Indian Agency, um, is that Packer does not at all look malnourished. If he's been eating roots and plants for the past yeah, three yeah, months, yeah, yeah. he should be very thin. He is not very thin at all. Um, he looks he looks well fed. Um, so they're like, well, this doesn't seem to make any sense. Oh, no. So he's not malnourished. So anyway, um, he they say, okay, fine. Um, and Packer then is going to stay in town for uh, – this is Breckenridge. We've arrived in Breckenridge yeah. now. We're just not at the gold, but that's where we are. He's going to stay in town for 10 days as he starts working on making a return trip back home to Pennsylvania. How are you traveling anymore? Like, you feel like travel time is done. I think he's taking a train, right? I don't know. Yeah. So he stays stays at a saloon. He gets a room in a saloon in town. Uh, And again, during these upcoming days as he's staying at the saloon, things are sketchy. People Uh are talking about this guy with his weird story and stuff like that. And, you know, he's drinking and he's playing cards and stuff like that. And two things come up. Number one, that... As he talks to people about what happened over the, those three months, uh, his story is very mm-hmm. inconsistent. Yep. Tells this guy this, this guy this, this guy this. He also has a lot of money. Oh, no. Hundreds of dollars, which he is spending on his room and his booze and his all this kind of stuff. And he's his money is stored. <laughs> I can't even say this straight. His money is stored in a whole bunch of different wallets. So sometimes <laughs> oh, he'll take no. out this wallet. And be like, oh, I don't have any money here. And put it back and get out a different wallet and have money in that one. What are you doing? <laughs> so people are like, I don't know about this. That's so sketchy. So, yeah. So while this is going on, and Packer is attracting a lot of attention, another gentleman shows up in town uh, at the Los Pinos Indian Agency by the name of Preston Nutler. Sure. Yep. He arrives. He is one of the original 20 uh, who had been with Packer, he's one of the 10 who stayed at Ure's camp. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he had been there. So uh, he gets there and, uh, you know, is like, Where is everybody? Uh, Packer, where's everybody else? Uh, and Packer tells him, Oh, no, no, no. He says, uh, let, let me tell you what happened. So he tells him a whole different story. Here's Packer's story that he tells this guy. Mm-hmm. He says that they are, you know, him and the five are out on their hike. And he says uh, he got his feet wet. He stepped in like a pond or something like that and got his feet wet. So he had to then uh, sit by the fire while the others went out um, and uh, to go like hunt or I don't know, do something. Um, and they left him with a gun. And then they just never came back. I mean, that legit could have happened. Yep, yep. <laughs> They're like, we got to get away from this guy. Yeah. And they but never also, came they back. never had, they don't have a fire. Well, I think that they probably made fire. I don't know how they made fire, but somehow they made fire. It seems they, they must have, you know, I don't know, they rub sticks together. They make fire on Survivor sometimes without a without a. Yeah, not wind. in the snow. Seems hard. Anyway, they never, so, they, so that's it. They never come back. Um, but Preston here. Again, he's a little skeptical, and then he becomes more skeptical because he happens to notice that Packer has that guy Frank Miller's knife 
And Frank uh, Miller no. loved his knife. Never let anybody touch his knife. No. So he asks him about it. He says, well, you got, well, you got Frank's knife there. And Packer says, oh, yeah, when they went out, Frank uh, stuck it in a tree and he left. So I just took it out of the tree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Preston is, again, skeptical. So now they're hanging out. Again, Packer's back to, you know, they're still hanging out in town here. And now five, the five people who just, took the river path show up. Can I ask about those guys? They show up. Yeah. Yep. And here they are. And they report that they um, had, a, had, had, a, had an okay time of things, all things considered. They ran into, like, a bunch of uh, cattle ranchers who uh, who helped them out. They stayed at that cattle camp for a little while while things, while the mm-hmm. weather kind of got better. And then the cattle ranchers, like, sort of helped them get there. They, again, hear Packer's story and immediately discredit it. And they, they, they sort of yes and Preston's thing about the knife. And they say, oh, also, Packer, that pipe that you have belongs to one of the other dudes on uh-huh. the trip. So now you've got that as well. So now at this point, the agency offer the agency officers uh, at the Indian agency, or so, sort of like pseudo police force, they um, they say, "All right, we got to sort this out." Yeah, Packer, you are not permitted to leave town. Yeah. you are required to stay here while we figure this out. They bring him in to the office and they confront him with these five dudes and with Preston, and they're all talking about it. Um, at which point, it's, it's like a, it's like it's getting it's like a French farce. At which point. <laughs> Two of the UT tribe members, the guys who the Indian, yeah, the Native yeah, Americans yeah. who they had stayed with, right? Two of those tribe members show up with strips of human flesh that they found. No! And at this point, Packer says, the jig is up. Just in their bag. I guess so, yeah. Oh. The jig is up. I must confess. And he tells the real story. Oh, no. So here's Packer's real story. All right, I'm ready. Okay? He says, yes, it's true. We walked off into the mountains. It was a very hard journey. We ran low on food. Uh, we were getting desperate. Uh, at some point, I went off. Uh, you know, we had, we'd made camp for the night. I went off to go get myself some wood for the for the fire. And I came back, and the uh, the five men who were there, four of them had killed one of the others. So I came back and one man was dead and the other four had killed him. Um, they were going to kill somebody. It'd be you. No, he was off getting, he's off getting, getting, getting wood. So we were starving. The man was dead. We ate him. Yeah. Um, and we divided up his money. And then over the course of coming, the coming weeks, it's just kind of happened again and again. And we eventually killed and ate three more people. Uh, as we were starving, leaving it so that it was just down to two people, me and this guy named Bell. It's not down to just Packer and Bell, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. We've eaten and taken the wallets of everybody else. Um, and Packer says, me and Bell, we made a vow that we were not going to kill each other. I will not kill you. You will not kill me. We can make it. We can do this. But then in the middle of the night, Bell attacks him and Packer has no choice but to kill him and eat him and take his money. It's like, what can I do? I got to eat him too. Yep. No choice. So they, uh, as has been the trend so far. They're skeptical. Sure. They have questions about this. They're not sure. So they Again, say, I feel like Alfred would be the first one that yep, they yep. kill and eat. Exactly. The one that they don't know. And yeah, he's a jerk. They don't like him. So they're skeptical. 
so they go on a search for the remains. Um, <laughs> Packer, of course, the search for the remains means that we need to rely on Packer right, to right. tell us where they stayed. So Packer, of course, gets lost, as yep. you would expect. This whole group, this whole giant posse is out searching for the remains. They get lost for two weeks oh roaming around trying to find. they have to start killing and eating each other. <laughs> At which point, finally, they head back. Packer gets into some sort of like big heated argument with a member of the group, attempts to kill that member of the group, Mm -hmm. so they put him in jail. So they return home, no (laughs) success, and they put him in jail. Okay? Now that he's in jail, he says, okay, 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 okay. I'll tell you the real story. Okay, so here's the story now. New story. New story is um, the whole group... Goes off into the mountains. We got lost in a blizzard, totally disoriented, couldn't find ourselves anything. We were, you know, we were lost. We were starving. We were in great danger. We uh, we first cooked and ate our shoes. And then we had a discussion, and we agreed that anybody who happened to die could be eaten. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're not going to kill anybody, but, you know, if you die, we all agree that we can eat you. Yes, fine. Good. So three died and were eaten. Again, it's just down to Packer and Bell. There's the two of us left. And then after that, um, when it was just Packer and Bell left, Bell went crazy and he... Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. There was Packer, Bell, and one other person still left. Uh, so, yeah, three die. There were, there's Packer, Bell, and one other. Uh, Packer says, now Bell at that point went berserk, shot the one person who was left, so Packer had no choice but to shoot Bell and, um, and then kind of went from there. It's very close to the same, the first story. It's I feel similar. Like you could have similar. just kept with the first story. Yeah, yeah. So that's what's happening. Okay, Packers now in jail. Flash forward a tiny bit to August. Mm-hmm. Some guy named John A. Randolph, random dude around the around the parts there. He finds a bunch of bodies. Oh no! Yep, yep, yep. He finds a bunch of bodies, and there are five bodies together. All where Packer said that he and Bell had had their final confrontation. Now, this is a problem, right? All five together because right. Packer's, all of Packer's stories up till now have been that, like, we ate this one, yeah, and then yeah, a few yeah, days later we ate this one, and then a few days later we ate this one. Not that, like, so their bodies should be, like, scattered, you know, days, journeys apart from each other. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But all five are together, right? Um, he draws the scene, John A. Randolph, I think he's. Maybe it's not him. Somebody draws the scene, and um, and uh, it's published in Harper's, which is kind of intense. Here's the picture. We'll put it on our Instagram. Whoa! Uh, it's pretty intense to be showing up in Harper's, right? Yeah. Like those people are those are dead bodies. Oh, jeez. Half eaten. Yeah. Half eaten dead corpses. Like they clothes and everything. Oof. Yeah. Pretty brutal. So you know the 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 group goes off to. Uh, investigate that not Packer Packer's in jail remember so sure. they don't bring him with them but you know the the agency people and Randolph and folks they all go and they check this out and they and uh, what they find there is they find um, that the people have broken bones mm-hmm. that they have hatchet blows to the oh, skull no. they find that a lot of the bodies still have meat on them mm-hmm. this is just not consistent with the story that he's told yeah, yeah right yeah. you know there's obviously been a lot of struggle um, you know we clearly didn't like eat everyone you know right. we, we ate some but obviously it's also been a while so what's been eaten by a by a animal since, you know, right, hard right, to know. Right. but it's very, it's very, very confusing. So then 
This is my favorite part. Then they come back to confront Packer about what they found, and he's gone. He escaped what? while they were while they were off on their little journey. He they, they he got out. He's gone. Oh man! And he's gone for a long time. They finally find him. He finally turns up again in 1883. Whoa! Yes, so just a reminder that we started in 1874. Yeah. Um, So he's gone for close to 10 years. And then he shows up in Cheyenne, Wyoming. The only reason that he is found is because he's... His (laughs) tattoo. That would be amazing. But no, he is identified by one of the people who had stayed at the... At the uh, Native American camp, oh. sees sees him. He just starts screaming. Reports who it is. Parker is uh, Packer. Sorry, is arrested and he is brought back. So there we go. So when he gets back, he says, "Okay, okay, okay. I'll tell you the <laughs> real story now. He's got a new story. His new story is that uh, because now he knows that they know all the bodies were sure, together. sure, sure. So his new story. And he's had ten years to think of one. Yeah, yeah. Work on it." Is that, you know, everything was, you know, going along, la-di-da. And then one day he went out to go hunting and he returned and Bell, poor Bell, Bell had gone yeah. berserk while he was away and had killed everyone. Um, so part, Packer comes back. Bell has just killed everyone. Bell attacks Packer. Packer has no choice but to kill Bell. And uh, that's his new story. And he just sits there and kind of gnaws on everybody for a while. Yeah. Why not just tell that story at the beginning? Ah, a good question. And that's exactly the question they ask. And they say, uh, why didn't you tell us that at first? And here's his quote as to why he said that. His, his response. Ready. He says, quote, I was excited. I wanted to say something. And the story, as I told it, came first to my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so whatever came in first. That's it. That's his answer. That's it. Not a good enough answer. <laughs> he goes to trial. Uh, he is found guilty. Sure. He is sentenced to hang. The newspaper, in reporting on the trial, quotes the judge and uh, as the judge passes his sentence. And I need to prepare you that this is the most amazing judge quote you're ever going to hear in your life. All right, I'm ready. It's, it's, it's like Yosemite Sam suddenly <laughs> as a judge. Here we go. This is what the judge said as quoted by the newspaper at the time. <clears throat> Stand up, you voracious man-eating son of a bitch, and receive your sentence. When you came to Hinsdale County, there was seven Democrats, but you, you ate five of them, damn ya. <laughs> I sentence you to be hanged by the neck until you're dead, dead, dead as a warning against reducing the Democratic population of this county. Packer, you Republican cannibal, Whoa. I would sentence you to hell, but the statues forbid it. Whoa! In Incredible. He makes it so political. Incredible. You <laughs> ate five of the seven Democrats. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. Amazing. So he sentences him to hang. He sentences him to death. But amazing twist. It is then turned out the Packer cannot be sentenced to death. Because in a weird legal loophole, though Colorado is now a state, Colorado was not a state at the time of the crime. And for some reason that I don't fully grasp, the fact of it not being a state means that you cannot impose the death penalty on him because, like, it yeah. just does, it does, doesn't work that way. Yeah. So they have to do a whole new trial because they screwed up and accused him of an under laws that didn't exist at the time. Wow. So they have to do a whole new trial. And he is, uh, and he is found guilty again 
and he is sentenced to 40 years in prison. He's ultimately paroled in 1901. Wow! Uh, and he dies in Colorado in 1907 from a stroke. Uh, he is buried in Colorado, although there is a uh, – it's unclear if this is true or not, but there's a Ripley's out there who claims to have his skull. <laughs> sure. Now, last thing that I will say, a really interesting and kind of bizarre thing about about Alfred, pa- Alfred Packer is that uh, there's this whole – like there's this whole thing about him like out there, out in Colorado um, – you know he's very well known, and like he his this whole story, despite being this like gruesome thing of cannibalism and like you know these horrible murders and stuff like that, it is all presented for laughs. Like he mm-hmm. has there's like restaurant that named after him that has like a you know like some sort of like cannibal burger type thing. Like there's all kinds of like weird jokey stuff. The way that I was first ever introduced to him is that I've known about him for many years, is that uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone of South Park fame, before they made South Park, and they're, of course, from Colorado, Uh before they made uh, South Park, they made a musical called Cannibal the Musical that is a spoofy musical of Packer's life. Uh, It's not very good, but... uh, I can see that, though. Yeah, it's 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 so absurd. Yeah, it's like a ridiculous, bizarre, weird story that's like so long ago that it becomes funny. You know what I mean? It's so insane that it's just... And now it is just this kind of like... The uh, Packer, that yeah. wacky, that wacky cannibal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that is uh, that is the story of Alfred Packer and his bizarre legacy that he's left behind. Amazing. Good stuff, eh? Good story. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, a lot of weird characters in that story. Yeah, that's what makes it so great. I want to know more about the the judge. Yeah. He, I wanted, I would, uh, I, I would approve of him having like a spinoff series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like People's Court. Yes, exactly. But with uh, but with, with that, that guy. guy, I know. All right, everybody. That was our first episode of season three. Season three, off to a bang. I feel like, yeah, woo good stuff. Uh, you finished your bulldog. I really did. I did enjoy it. It's really rare that you finish your drink. I'm pretty sleepy now. Well, that's good. Um, didn't but the, no. di- the diet coke didn't uh, the splash of diet coke didn't keep you going. It didn't. It was nice though. It tasted. It had like a nice flavor, and yeah, yeah. I liked it. I thought it was good. That was good stuff. I could All I right. could envision drinking it again. Yeah. All right. Thumbs up from Jen. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, Stick around after the song. We'll tell you what next week's uh, creepy cocktail will be. And we hope that you you buy some creepy cocktail ingredients and make it with us. It's always and have have a drink as as you listen. Yay. Not if you're driving. That's inappropriate. No, don't do that. That's what I said. (laughs) I said don't. Goodbye. Hi, this is Fraser with information on next week's Creepy Cocktail. Next week, we're doing a blood orange bourbon sour. So here's what you need. You need two ounces of bourbon, one ounce freshly squeezed blood orange juice, 
one ounce simple syrup, one ounce lemon juice, and a half ounce lime juice. Take all that, shake it over with ice, and then strain it and serve it over ice. Add in a cherry and a slice of the blood orange to garnish, and you are all set. So there it is, the blood orange bourbon sour. Make that up for yourself next week and join us. In the meantime, as always, please be sure to follow us. We are on Instagram at Pod and Twitter at Hist. See you next time.